You are listening to Life Stories with me, Natalie Miller-Snell. Throughout this series, you'll hear honest conversations with inspiring people. And I am so super excited and so very grateful for my guests who have been incredibly candid about their journeys. So sit back and prepare to be inspired. Hello, everyone. My guest today is quite an amazing individual. She's an award-winning comedian who has made appearances on BBC Radio 4 programmes such as Women's Hour, Loose Ends and Forethought. Her first book is Monogamy Dead, was long-listed for the Polari First Book Prize following her TEDx talk of the same name. She also presents the Breakup Monologues podcast and writes for many publications and regularly appears as a commentator on sexuality, dating and love on radio and TV programmes. Wow. Please put your hands <laughs> together for the incredible Rosie Wilby. Woo! <laughs> Thank you. Thank That's you so that. impressive. Oh, well, gosh. I mean, it's over many years that I've accumulated various accolades and, and experiences shall we say does it feel quite amazing to hear it back how does it feel well, you know it's great to accumulate a, a wealth of experience and to have finally had a book out I've been creating in one way or another for many many years I was actually a musician before I turned to comedy I mean maybe we'll talk about yeah. that transition point in my life which was quite an interesting time and so, yeah, I've also yeah done podcasting and radio and so many different things. Um, but always, I guess, the idea of having a book out was something that that was there. And it took a while to get around to that. And now, obviously, I've got one out and another one on the way, which we'll talk about. Which well. we will <laughs> definitely talk about. Well, that's it. Why don't, I mean, it's an incredible accolade. Why don't we let, let's start with you in terms of where, well, where did it all start? Was the the goal and the dream to be a comedian? What, you know, what's the story for Rosie? How did um, it all begin? Uh, that's an interesting one because I grew up in a town in Lancashire called Ormskirk, which I always kind of made fun of a little bit that I, I said it was a bit near Liverpool and a bit like Liverpool if you take away everything uh, <laughs> because I mean Liverpool was a fun city that was nearby but Ormskirk itself is is not very exciting to be a teenager it's you know market town that has a sort of market on a Thursday and it's it's a bit sort of quiet and staid but it, it's okay. I mean, my dad still lives there and he loves it. Bless him. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I, I always kind of dreamed of being creative. But in my childhood, first of all, I enjoyed visual art and particularly cartooning. I used to make up my own cartoon characters. I had a cartoon character called Super Dog who looked a little like Snoopy but a slightly different breed, slightly more curly ears. And, and he was a superhero it. dog who would go around slightly clumsily and inadvertently solving mysteries and crimes. And I would kind of spend hours, you know, drawing whole cartoon strips uh, based on, on Superdog. Uh, but then got into songwriting and in the 80s as a teenager had those teeny tiny little Casio keyboards that you know you would press a button and it would have a full production <laughs> of your disco beat. <laughs> I remember those. Um, 
yeah they were brilliant and so I started writing songs and started forming bands you know with the other kids in the street and so really it was all about music for me for many years and when I was in my 20s and came down to London I had different bands and was songwriting and then came to a point in my life where you know I my I was starting to get good gigs and do quite well and and had you know a little bit of recognition as a singer and songwriter on the London circuit you know getting towards the kind of towards the sort of Britpop era um in the 90s and stuff around Camden and Islington I was also a bit of a music journalist at the time reviewing for some of the local newspapers and so I you know although people outside of London wouldn't know of me there were people kind of buzzing around on the London scene who knew who I was and yeah then I had this um as I mentioned as I alluded to this kind of transition point in my life at the end of my 20s going into my 30s which was also the millennium and we we all thought of course as we saw the new year in in the year 2000 that the world was going to end. It was going to end, know. yeah. There, there was all the millennium bug, we didn't know. <laughs> we thought all the computers were going to crash and everything would just sort of shut down. And and it was a time of great change anyway because technology all seemed very new and seemed to be moving at a fast pace. I mean, it, it seemed remarkable that we had mobile phones, you know, and then we could get emails and, and things like that. Um, it all seemed rather exotic, didn't it? Um, yeah. You know, I remember my uh, first phone, like, and I think back, and it was a brick, and then I had this one with this teeny tiny handle that flicked out. <laughs> I thought it was so cool. So yeah, cool. Amazing. Um, and so, so, yeah, it was this time of great transition. And, and sadly, um, just as my music career was sort of starting to go well I had an album out and it was out in you know in the shops and I could go and see it and it was there on the shelves in Virgin Megastore and HMB and um and all of that kind of stuff um around that time my mum uh, had cancer and she sadly deteriorated fairly quickly and so my mother passed away towards the end of my 20s and I'd had this fairly fun kind of existence being in bands and being in my first proper relationship with another woman and being out and being a gay woman and enjoying that and going to pride festivals and then of course suddenly there was something quite adult and serious and grown up to deal with and I guess really that that was a big point of transition and a big point of change and yeah I did sort of carry on doing music a bit here and there but it sort of really changed my momentum in life and changed what I wanted to do creatively um and perhaps songwriting and the emotion of that was was almost too much in a way and so I drifted towards comedy which was something very different not very expected for me I'd been quite a introverted and shy teenager at school I guess I mean I I was I was a mix I was a you know I would enjoy performing and doing something in the school show but in general outside of that in social situations I probably was quieter than the people that you would think of as the big class extrovert or class clown so comedy was kind of an interesting choice but also quite an interesting escape into a different sort of surreal world I'd always loved uh, people like Eddie Izzard and the sort of 
the really strange and surreal world you can create in comedy where almost anything goes and rules can can be broken so yeah I I began comedy was kind of dipping my toes in I was still doing a bit of music as well in my sort of kind of early mid-30s and then comedy really did um take over for quite a while I entered a few comedy competitions and found myself getting through to the latter stages and what I quite like about comedy is that to a degree it's fairly accessible to you know it doesn't really matter who you are and you can just go and rock up and and do gigs and you can get a space on a stage and you can say stuff and (laughs) You can, and hope folk laugh yeah well you can hope folk laugh and and that's the best way of judging if it is funny although as you do it more and more you do realize there are different types of audiences and okay perhaps you know it, it's I think it's really interesting how depending on what story you've got to tell there are different places that will fit in or it won't and I think that reflects more broadly in life where we do and don't fit in depending on our okay gender yeah. sexuality our age our cultural background and on all kinds of things and I think you know I like to I, I did think in many ways comedy was this celebratory really accessible place where there was a kind of a meritocracy and either you were funny or you weren't you know and, and if you made your audiences laugh you kind of got more gigs and and it worked like that but but then I think when you move higher up in something and you start getting professional gigs and getting paid you also realize that our unconscious biases as audiences do start to play a part so yeah. I think it, I think it's kind of interesting I mean I've always kind of struggled with both the liberation and limitations of being very very gay if okay. you like um I'm, I don't know I guess I'm of a certain generation um you know I was kind of realized I was gay in the 1980s when gosh it was a real taboo but wow, I think yeah I you know so I was a teenager in the 80s when we had Thatcher we had the AIDS crisis and and gays were kind of the scum of the world really and so I think you know, if you were kind of coming out at the end of the 80s, early 90s, you know, as a student in the early 90s, I think you kind of felt like being gay was sort of like it made you an outsider and you may as well celebrate that. Cele- yeah, probably absolutely. Always be an outsider. Um, and why not really, really enjoy that in some ways and the liberation of that? So I guess my comedy has always been... Um, you know, my identity as a gay woman has always been a big thread running through that. I try to make that accessible and talk about things like coming out in a way that is universal and is accessible to heterosexual audiences as well, you know, just mm. in terms of how awkward it is communicating cross-generationally. Well, it's educational um, as well, isn't it, in terms of how you do oh, that, yeah. but in a comedic way. And it's, it's in a comedic almost, way. Yeah. So I think it I think it's really fascinating. You know, because having said all that and having said the fact that, you know, I've had lots of straight audiences come and absolutely love my shows. Ultimately, I suppose there were lots of shows that I did where the most passionate um, and celebratory members of the audience were, you know, gangs of gay women. And that's lovely and wonderful to have that support. But it also it's kind of limiting in another way as well. It's, it's you know, I remember once I did um, 
a double up in um, Bristol, which is a, a lovely place. Love Bristol. And I kind of I was doing I was doing an opening set at a really, really straight kind of comedy club, like a mainstreamy comedy club where, you know, there was always only ever one woman on the bill, you know, because they were a bit of a risk because, you know, the male <laughs> promoter probably thought, oh, women aren't really funny. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and then I was headlining later that night across town at, at a women's night that was, you know, it wasn't a specifically a gay women's night, but most of the audience there were lesbians. And so it sort of felt like these, these two very, very different worlds. And, it, you know, if I'd have been only performing that night at the straight kind of mainstream comedy club, probably a big table full of lesbians would have come and cheered loudly and supported me. <laughs> And whereas all the lesbians were at this other night to see me later on. And in some senses, I thought, oh, it's really interesting because I'm sort of, you know, my my really, really vocal, enthusiastic crowd are all at the other night. And even though these kind of quite straight, middle class, white, kind of very mainstreamy people are enjoying me, too, they can never relate to me in the same way right. as somebody yeah, okay. who has just lived their life and lived their experience and I think there's something very interesting about that that I've I've kind of found more intriguing and, and sort of limiting but but fascinating but I think um, our experiences colour who we are and where we are in the world mm. and what you know unfortunately sometimes what opportunities are available to us and I think I think there's something really interesting. It's it's not really always about overt prejudice. It's about a sort of unconscious bias yeah. that we have towards just relating to people who we feel are like us. So I, it's been an interesting one that I've really found quite challenging at times. And, you know, even one reviewer once, um, a, a lovely straight woman who reviewed my show and said, you know, it's a shame. It's a shame that there's, there's only... Uh, lesbians here like this room is full of lesbians because Rosie's stuff would really appeal to everybody you know which is great and yeah. it would but in some ways I thought well I don't think it's a shame because these lesbians are all really loving it loving it so, I don't know it's it's a tricky one isn't it and uh, that's really fascinating to hear and actually drawing on something you mentioned earlier in terms of you're possibly an introvert in your younger years perhaps you've developed and changed how did you overcome that because there'd be folk listening to this thinking oh my goodness that's amazing perhaps I'd like to do comedy myself or you know or anything to move into a new sector how did you overcome the introversion to do that then I think um comedy is really interesting there was a psychological study done uh, maybe about eight or so ten, eight, nine years ago, maybe around 2012 or around that time where they kind of studied the psychological profile of comedians. And comedians were found, as opposed to actors who generally are quite extrovert, comedians were found to be a complex mix of introvert and extrovert. And so I think you do find a number of comedians who are quite introverted, but then are able to sort of turn something on on stage because you have even though you make it look very spontaneous and there are certain things you react to in a very spontaneous way, like maybe a heckler or a, a weird thing that goes on in the room or just a very bizarre room, a painting or an ornament or something that you've got to comment on. Um, you know, I think you have a certain amount of preparation that goes into having a 20 minute stand up set or a full hour solo show. So you kind of know what you're doing and if you've done it enough you know that 
you are competent at doing it. So that gives you a certain assurance and confidence. And you have a microphone as well. You have, to some extent, the upper hand. I mean, <laughs> it depends who's in the audience. <laughs> well, I was going to say, but I, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that does overcome a certain introversion because you can command that space and say, I have a story to tell. It's interesting. It's funny. And I've put time and effort into preparing it for you. And, you know, the sound engineers have spent time and effort into sending this room up to make it nice for you to come and experience it. And so here we are, you know, sit back, enjoy it, laugh, uh, maybe get involved a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> and, and so I think it, because there's something that is created for you to be able to speak, I think in some ways, comedy is the introvert's dream. Right. Because I think most introverts want to have a space to be heard. But unfortunately, it's a bit of a bun fight at most times in this world. I think introversion and extroversion is, is such a fascinating thing. Yeah. And so we, I was doing comedy and that, that was really great. Um, as a comedian, obviously, one of the things that you do is you go to Edinburgh and to go to Edinburgh, you take a solo show. And so you have a bit of a theme. And the main theme that I've explored for my solo shows, I mean, I have had one-off other shows about feminism and, and storytelling shows about other things. But the main theme I took was trying to unpack the psychology of love and attraction and dating and relationships and, and how that all works. And I think being gay and already being slightly outside of the normative narrative about that made me even more curious about how relationships work for all of us and how some things are universal, never mind what your sexual orientation or your gender identity is, but some things might be particularly unique to the particular relationship narrative you have. And so I began writing a trilogy of shows uh, it began with a show called The Science of Sex, which was a kind of spoofy uh, kind of the, the sort of subversive biology lesson that we all wish we'd had at school. I was kind of in my lab coat and safety goggles and had funny oh, really? graphs about sexuality <laughs> and love. And I would kind of recite spoofy ancient love poetry to the audience and, and tell them about some real stuff about the history of the psychology of love and kind of history of sex research over the past few decades but obviously some kind of spoofy silly stuff as well and um yeah so that then led to the middle part of the trilogy was called is monogamy dead which of course then became my first book and then i did a show called the conscious uncoupling which was about breakups and then that eventually led to the podcast, podcast that I do now which is also uh, which is called the breakup monologues and that's also about breakups I think that you know I and I love that journey actually and I think it's quite incredible and, and I mean to a takeaway from this as well is how to use pick up on what resonates and what works with folk you know in, in the comedy world with what you were delivering actually then extrapolating that and we'll come on to writing so I'd be interested to understand yeah. where the writing bug came from albeit I mean I've written down here creative you are incredibly creative and that story is you know that's very evident in everything you've said so far so it, it makes sense but taking what works and taking what's resonated with people and then bringing that into a book and then doing the podcast as well and then following on from that which we'll come on to is another book which comes from the podcast is that right 
So yes, there's like so a wonderful journey with it. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And it's obviously that journey isn't completely planned. I mean, when I first started touring the science of sex, I, I suppose I didn't absolutely know it was going to be part of a trilogy. I thought it was a start of something. And then once I'd written Is Monogamy Dead, I kind of knew that something was going to um going to write something about breakups because I had been through a breakup that was quite okay. significant at that point and so I thought well that would close the trilogy quite effectively but it was only when I was touring this show called The Conscious Uncoupling and other people came up to me with their breakup stories um, as opposed to me just sort of talking about my breakup um, I realised that a podcast about other people's stories as well as my own journey and with that bringing in that broader psychology and science and how does heartbreak work and the sort of parallels with withdrawing from a drug and, and addiction and you know all these kind of interesting more broad scientific ways of understanding love and heartbreak I thought all that could come together in a podcast and then of course then you've got so many ideas together you think well why not write a book <laughs> but as well well let's talk about the book writing and first of all I mean what struck me on looking at the bits and bobs on you and your blog and, and, and an article that or an interview you did recently um I love how you research as well so you've got these ideas and you're very intrigued in terms of relationships and how that all works but you've put some fact and figures and research behind it so how did the book come about because it's a brave title as well I mean that was obviously the comedy stand-up to begin with folk it made assumptions about who you are and what you think about monogamy based on the title is that right yeah so that's the first book is monogamy dead um yeah that came from the, the middle part of the comedy trilogy which which also had the same title and it's interesting how over the few years that I've been kind of, I was touring that show and then I had a book out about that show, the whole conversation, well, in the UK at least, about monogamy has altered. And I think people are now more sort of open to questioning what monogamy and fidelity and exclusivity in a relationship, what that actually means. And you know, we do sort of have some people openly talking about being non-monogamous or being polyamorous and there's less kind of stigma or taboo around that. I thought that was really interesting and it, it still was a bit of a secret world when I started researching it in 2013 and I'd always been monogamous or so I thought, didn't really know about any alternatives and but I realised I'd had a lot of breakups and a lot of back-to-back -back relationships, so was a serial monogamist. And, you know, that, you know, they, they say, oh, you know, monogamy is um, supposed to be about one marriage for life, whereas serial monogamy is one marriage at a time. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to question whether does that really still count? And I think I was curious about this, this kind of romantic myth that we have that we are going to meet this one person who you know we stay with forever who satisfies our every need forever and so I wanted to kind of explore that and and unpack that a little bit and think about how you know a romantic relationship doesn't necessarily fulfill 100% of all our needs and many of us do rely on other people as well whether that is you know, some people might have other lovers or, you know, if they're having an affair or if they're openly non-monogamous or some people might have really, really romantic friendships, really, really deep 
caring, giving friendships. They might have larger biological families. They might have uh, workmates that they really genuinely get along with. Some people don't get along with their workmates, but some people have really special relationships with people they work with. So there's, I think, so many different ways in which we connect and relate to one another. So I decided for the main part of research for that book was I did a survey asking what counts as cheating. And Ooh. that was really interesting because it's not a straightforward question as, as we think. It's not just black and white. Um, so for some people, they were potentially okay with their partner maybe having a little snog with somebody else or having some kind of physical contact with somebody else, but were much more threatened by the idea of their partner falling in love with somebody else or having a really deep emotional connection. So there was two different kind of scales or kind of spectrums of monogamy, I think. There was the physical, but also the emotional. And for some people, the emotional was far more, you know, kind of resonant. And so I think it's it's not as clear cut as, as we think at all. So for some people, they might have what I call love affair friendships, where they have non-sexual friendships, but the friendships are so important that it almost is a relationship as well. So you could argue that many of us are polyamorous uh, because that sort of just means many loves. So many of us love many different people rather than just this one person. And I think that already slightly debunks this romantic fairy tale myth that, you know, when we go off and meet our prince or princess, <laughs> yeah. that, that that is it, that, that we just sort of are swept off our feet by them and hang around with them forever. <laughs> and that's it. It's a really interesting take on it, because I talk about connection a lot. I'm really, I'm very much, I mean, particularly with the pandemic we've just had. I mean, the isolation well, we've all experienced has been so extreme and so quite damaging, I think, for a lot of folks' mental health, but just generally our interaction and how we, as a, as a species, you know, we really are a kind of tribal species and we need that connection. But that's a yeah. different take on it. I'm really intrigued by that. I'm going to give that some thought. So then from the, the from the book, which I have had just downloaded as well, I'm very excited to read Ooh, it. Yeah, say. yeah, no, I'm really looking yeah. forward to reading it. it. It sounds fantastic. Great name. Um, you do, what, Did TEDx talk come before or after that? Or it's from the stage show? Oh, yeah, I did a TEDx talk before the book, but after the comedy show. So and then I did various articles and talks. And yeah, so lot, lots of different creative work came off of that show because it was such an interesting theme. And I think a rapidly changing landscape as far as how we talk about monogamy in the media. So I think it's it's definitely been an interesting conversation to be a part of. And I started getting phone calls from I don't know, you know, random TV shows that were going to have a, a debate, a discussion, you know, about monogamy and, you know, whether open relationships or having more than one partner could ever be a, you know, a good idea or, or a good thing. And of course, these kind of TV shows often really try and oversimplify it. Whereas what the mm -hmm. argument I'm making about emotional connection is, is perhaps a bit subtler and more sophisticated yeah. than that. And how... I think for some people, it's harder, you know, to make friends in the way that some people do. And, and so I think for some people, having calling it a relationship and dating and having some physical element or component to that is, is a way of accessing connection. 
And so who are we to judge and say that you should not kind of have more than one connection if if that is, you know, if having if calling it that, calling it a relationship is your way of, of kind of accessing that connection. Because I think I think friendships are changing in, in my view, because we have sort of Facebook friendship and we have this slight online world, de- yeah. Online world, in my view, and a sort of devaluation of the idea of friendship. Because you know, I've got I've got five thousand friends on Facebook, which is a nonsense. <laughs> How and do you keep of, up with that? <laughs> well, I don't. I've no idea who some of them are. I mean, it's people who've seen me at comedy gigs, and I stupidly I didn't set up an official page until I've been doing comedy a number of years. So there'd be people who'd seen me at a gig and I would just accept their friend requests, you know, but they're not actual friends. So yeah. it's a bit of a misnomer, isn't it? And people wish me happy birthday on my birthday. And I'm like, God, I don't think I know who you are. Yeah. And so it's, it, I think it's, an it's interesting weird. thing. Yeah. yeah. So I think friendship is changing, but I obviously the digital world is, is very important now. I've been a bit sniffy about digital connection as opposed to real face-to-face um and I've, I've talked a lot in my work about breakups about you know whether you should have a breakup conversation face-to-face or whether you can be dumped by email or text but I guess now we have to embrace digital communication and, and doing stuff like this is still valuable it's still really good but I, I don't know can it be a replacement for really being in the room with people I'm not sure no, I don't think it can. And I think you're, I mean, we'll come on to your conversation about the, I listened to one of your um, podcasts, the live version from the show talking about that very, you know, getting dumped on text uh, or whatever. Absolutely yeah. fasc- fascinating. Because you, did someone broke up with you via email? Yes. And that's where, yes, is that's this right. where it kind of all that's started? That's kind of right? where a lot of the um, comedy and stuff about breakups started from because, yeah, I did, uh, I did joke that I felt much better once I corrected her spelling. <laughs> That's quite funny. I would never dream of doing something like that. You're quite right. I mean, there's nothing like interaction, that having that physical connection, feeling the energy of somebody in the room as well. You, yeah, you can't live yeah. without that. I, I'm really embraced online because of the pandemic, and I, I find it's a really great way still to connect with people. However, on the relationship side of things, goodness gracious, I don't know, the younger generation probably have a totally different view on this, but to say, mm. no, thanks very much, ciao, even if it's only been a short relationship. I mean, not that I would know what that's like now. I've been married for so long. <laughs> but you know what? It feels, feels odd. <laughs> yeah, I, I think so. But yeah, like you say, it's, it, I think it's very different for the younger generation. But I think it's a scary world for the younger generation. I really do. <laughs> wow, there is that too, yeah. So your podcast is absolutely brilliant. I did, Like I said, I did listen. It's really insightful. You have a couple of guests on every every show. You talk around the idea of breakups, what that looks like and how that's felt, and people's stories, which came from the back of the stand-up. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It did very much come off the back of this trilogy of shows all about love and relationships. And so... The breakup monologues just sounded like a, a fun name for a podcast about breakup stories. And I suppose rather than, I mean, it actually evolved initially just for a few shows. It was just a live show that we didn't record for podcasts. And it really was people telling their breakup stories, whereas it evolved into more of a broad chat, as you say, with insights about the real science and psychology about how how heartbreak works, as well as having comedians and authors on who tell very funny and uh, very engaging stories. There is, 
you know, real expert input from scientists and academics, uh, evolutionary anthropologists and, you know, people who really do know about why why we behave in a certain way, why we are, why we quite literally are crazy in love because <laughs> there's all these weird chemicals whizzing around our brains. Yeah. Well, it's the, well, the serotonin, all those good stuff that you get just from hugging people or having a compliment or passing a compliment. Or, I, yeah, yeah, I totally understand yeah, the that. Dopamine and, yeah, 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 like yeah, yeah. and serotonin. But, but the problem is we get quite hooked on these chemicals. So when they're suddenly, you know, the source of the, the feel-good chemical is taken away, we are How in withdrawal. So, yes. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> that's a whole yes. other world. Well, quite. Okay. Well, that's so you've now got another podcast season coming up, have you? I have, yes. So the Breakup Monologues returns for season four uh, in February. So around Valentine's Day, when people <laughs> are feeling under pressure to be having the perfect relationship. Oh, brilliant. Um, because it's actually, sadly, um, a relatively busy time for people breaking up as well you know as that pressure really tells on us and tells on our intimate relationships people are sometimes breaking up and separating and thinking well actually no this isn't this isn't my dream soulmate that I've been told will fulfill my every need and hope I'd be really interested to hear. And in fact, actually, folks get in contact, um, hashtag life stories. I really would love to know actually how much of this resonates with people or if they're kind of, oh, no, don't. What are you talking about? Monogamy. That's the only way. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I'd be really fascinated to know. Well, I mean, the interesting thing about all of this is that the book that now is the next piece of the puzzle, if you like, the creative journey um, the book that has sprung from the podcast and is also called The Breakup Monologues, actually, as opposed to the podcast focusing mostly on other people's stories and thoughts and ideas and me kind of interviewing them and probing them and trying to get these bits and pieces out of them, the book does bring all those ideas and elements in, but largely focuses on my own story of, at last, trying to stay in a relationship having learned so much from all my breakups and my times of singleness and kind of the ups and downs of the roller coaster because just at the very end of is monogamy dead um, people who have read that book will see that there is a mention in the last couple of chapters of um, a partner called s Uh, she just says the name s and uh, who who i meet and so i've done all this kind of growing and personal development and thinking and a bit of therapy and a bit of kind of just you know processing everything and working out how relationships work what I want what are some of the poorer choices that I've made not that I've necessarily chosen the wrong people it's just there's a couple of people that I probably stayed with too long you know I didn't kind of assess that that was maybe a fun fling and I thought well, we've fallen in love, we're supposed to be together forever. That's what happens, you know. Um, whereas sometimes it's just not very compatible. And even though you've had a brilliant time for a few months, um, you know, you don't just share the same vision of where you want to go <laughs> at all. Um, so, you know, I was able to assess all of that in a slightly more pragmatic and less emotional way. And so I, I did meet somebody at the end of, of that book 
um, who I, you know, now live with, and we are now engaged to be married. Wow! <laughs> and so, thank you. Congratulations. <laughs> and so, I think it's, it, you know, it's almost a, um, an indication of how thinking about relationships. I mean, for me, as part of a very creative and professional quest, which saw me bringing this into my work and onto the stage. Um, how it can help you to figure out what you want and how to commit to a real relationship, you know, a monogamous relationship, as it turns out, you know, but having thought about what monogamy means, it means we can have, um, you know, a, a mature discussion about, well, what, what is fidelity? What, what does that mean? What would I be threatened by? What would I be upset if you did without telling me? Or, you know, what is fine, you know? And I don't know, for example, my partner, she loves going skiing. I mean, don't think she's going to get a chance to go this year, oh, yeah. but she just fitted in a ski trip um, before lockdown, actually, in 2020. And that's something that she absolutely loves. And I quite enjoy skiing. I'm, I'm not very good. She's amazing. She can just ski down the Black Run or whatever. And so sometimes she wants to be able to go off skiing and not necessarily with me. She wants to go with her mates who are also amazing skiers. And I'm more than happy for her to be able to do that. But she, her previous partner would sometimes not like her doing that. She'd feel kind of excluded from something yeah um so it's it's kind of about those freedoms about you know just feeling totally comfortable with your partner going off and doing something that they enjoy with other people sometimes I mean she did love it when I went skiing as well and kind of you know kind of helping me down the mountain on my bum <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's like coming full circle though isn't it it's almost going back to the beginning it's having the healthy conversations healthy connections with others and actually understanding the broad scope of what we can have with relationships with general folk and what our our lives require I suppose and actually being just open and honest about it yeah absolutely yeah I love that brilliant okay right so we've got a book coming up in is that later this year podcast yeah. I know there's so much going on. So the, the Breakup Monologues is my podcast, which launches a new season, the fourth season on February the 12th. And you can also catch up with the, the three, th three seasons already available. And then the Breakup Monologues book comes out at the end of May. And that is published by Bloomsbury's Health and Wellbeing in Print Green Tree. So that's available at the end of May in the UK and then also around other parts of the world later in the year as well in the in the US and in Australia and everywhere else so yeah that, Fantastic. Um, great if people check check that out and definitely get with me on social media and where is the best place to catch you is that social media is it where are you mostly yeah um I I'm on Twitter at Rosie Wilby which is R-O-S-I-E-W-I-L-B-Y and I also have an Instagram feed for the podcast and well also the book now so that's at breakup monologues I'll check that one out I'm not sure I follow you there definitely so oh, what yeah. is there anything else in the pipeline what does this year look like in terms of stand-up I mean obviously with the pandemic I suppose that's <laughs> you can't even talk about it can you oh my goodness well yeah it's I mean actually seriously the, the stand-up circuit is very threatened by yeah. this um pandemic because even though there are gigs happening on zoom and some events happening that way and and i will be doing some bits and pieces i'm actually going to be trying a 
a live online version of the podcast with a lovely venue I sometimes work with in East London and so we're going to do a Zoom event together um, in, in February as well but I I do miss the sort of proper live yeah. in the room with the audience and I don't know how it's going to pan out this year it's it's a shame that the comedy circuit and there's some wonderful it's sometimes the little clubs that are doing really interesting things that are really supportive of you know really diverse acts and kind of slightly more off the wall and interesting acts that, yeah. that suffer the most sometimes but yeah we'll have to see how it goes I really hope some of the festivals will be able to happen in some way maybe some of the smaller ones that can have a very limited capacity and can socially distance because uh, I love the summer festival season that's, that's something Fingers I really crossed. love or even well, outside whether or not there can be some alternative way of doing it so it's outside so it's not such a challenge perhaps well yeah I mean, I mean yeah. summer festivals obviously do happen oh they're outside. all outside okay but, okay but that said most of them have so many people that <laughs> I don't yeah. know if it would in theory be safe but perhaps some of them can do yeah more socially distanced kind of oh kind of stuff let's really hope so um because I would certainly hope to tour some kind of live event live version of the podcast or a kind of solo talk about breakups or you know in some way after the book has come out in order to to promote it because with the first book that was the main way that I sold copies was you know doing little talks in in bookshops or at festivals and and then people come up and get it get it signed afterwards right. and often ask you to write something funny <laughs> exactly well think oh, i have all cross vaccine come on you can do this absolutely yeah let's hope yes yeah so <laughs> i suppose to close out you have already offered some great um kind of tidbits in your life in terms of how you overcome um introversion so, so if someone wants to get out and do comedy um, obviously with challenging years ahead but you know what, how would you advise them to go out and do that or overcome something just to to get out and do it is what it is they want to do because you've got, gone through a myriad of incredible steps learns you know season the day moments what kind of advice would you offer someone to to get out and do that um well I think you can always and it's not always the answer but you can do a course um and I did a comedy course before I I, I mean, I'd done a few gigs, but before I did a lot of the larger gigs, I, I did a little course. And even if you, you know, don't necessarily learn so much about how to do something as you do by actually getting up and doing it, obviously you do, you start to get a sense of what some of the tools are. And more importantly than that, even you start to meet a group of other people who are doing it as well and who are starting out and you make your first comedy friends and your comedy friendships. So that's probably the important thing because then you've got somebody to support you when you go and do a, yeah. <laughs> a strange, very weird open mic gig with five people in the audience and a dog. Um, you know, you've got another comedian there who is laughing and smiling. Um, so even if all these courses or even if the gigs are all happening online, you know, we, I guess you can still network in, in that sense and, and make connections and make friends in that way. But um, yeah, I think it's about finding your angle and your voice and your theme about what you want to talk about. So for me, this sort of psychological, scientific, analytical way of looking at relationships was was something that I wanted to do so finding a niche of something that you you want to talk about is is a good idea I think
Love it. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been really fantastic. What a treat in the morning. It's been, <laughs> been really, yeah, sunshine. You've got a lovely painting in the background as well. I can just see bright colours. It's lovely. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's been really good. Yeah. And everyone, please get out, buy your book, the new book that's coming out as well. And also listen yeah, you to can, the podcast. You can pre-order the Breakup Monologues book already now. Oh, right. Brilliant. Okay. Good to know. That's fantastic. Thanks everybody for listening. Please join me next week when I'm going to have another very fabulous guest on. Take care. Look after yourself. Keep well. You have been listening to Life Stories with me, Natalie Miller-Snell. For all information related to my guests, please check the show notes. And if you wish to continue the conversation with us, please hashtag Life Stories on all social channels. If you enjoyed this show, please pop over to seizetheday.simplecast.com where you'll find my other shows. If you're interested to know any more about coaching, please visit me at nmscoaching.co.uk where you'll also find details of the latest workshops I am running. Thank you so much for listening. 